Welcome to the Law of Starbucks podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us. Today, we are very, very lucky to have uh, on our show Nat Burgess. Nat is a uh, longtime uh, M&A connoisseur or artist. Artist. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just call you an artist. Nat, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Mike, really appreciate you having me on today. So yeah, let's get back to this point of artistry in the in the in the M and A context. So you've helped a lot of companies over the last twenty years or so sell themselves, software companies primarily. Um, you're the exit guy. You're the guy who helps companies get to work. You know, get to the the dreamland. Tell tell us about it. Well, Joe, uh, you know that, that's a really interesting question for me right now because I actually just started a new firm over the summer, helping small tech companies get acquired. And it is really an art. And I say that it's, it's, I started out at Morgan Stanley, crunching numbers and sitting in the ivory tower, working on giant financial models. And the work I've done over the last 20 years, selling over 100 companies now, has been very, very different. And we can talk in detail about what those differences are. But there's a lot more strategy and there's a lot more work that happens before you even reach out and talk to anybody uh, that's critical to success. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Let's say let's say you're building a, a software as a service company, and let's say you're in year two of your company's life. Uh, you've got maybe some customers that are um, maybe the, the the hints or the the start of some paying customers, and you're thinking to yourself, uh, like, hey, what what happens? What happens five or six years from now? Or when should I start thinking about? When should you start thinking about the exit process? So I think my view, and I'm on, the, I'm, I'm on boards and I do some angel investing, so I think about this very early. Um, you need to be thinking about the exit from the very beginning. So start with the exit in mind. And that doesn't mean you're out with a for sale sign on your company. That's, that's fatal. What it does mean is that you're very aware of how you're relevant to the bigger players in your market and how you become more relevant by partnering with them, by figuring out how to go out on joint sales calls, by figuring out how to work well with them. And I, I always start every first board meeting with a startup. If, I, if I'm an angel or otherwise involved, uh, we sit down and we talk about who are the 10 companies that should buy you in five years. And now let's talk about how do we get to know them. So that's really step one. So, okay, so the markets are constantly shifting around. And the 10 companies, in my little SaaS example, I mean, who knows if these are the right 10 companies? How do you know? What's, is it just based on your databases that you've maintained and grown and relationships you've nurtured over 20 years? How, how, do, how does the company even know? So Steve Jobs used to talk a lot about relevance. And if you look at how he built products, his goal was to be relevant to the customer. And it, it, in some cases, it was amazing that he pulled it off, like with, the, uh, with iTunes. I, CDs were great, right? I could make a mix CD. I could share music with friends. I didn't need to go download MP3s, but he made them relevant to all of us. Now, if you're thinking about M&A and you're thinking about getting acquired by a bigger company, your challenge is to become relevant to them. Chances are they're a lot bigger. They don't care about your revenue. They don't care about your earnings. They probably think your product is a little bit rinky-dink and it's not going to scale to their scale. How do you become relevant? And that's, that's really the first challenge. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's give this let's break this down. How do you become relevant? Let, how, give us a tactical example if you can. I don't know, Joe. I mean, you're the guy wearing the expensive headphones. I can barely hear you guys. <laughs> That's right. Well, no, but but, tell, tell us. Like, all right. Let me give you an example. Yeah. I'm working right now with a really cool company that's got a social networking platform, and I know that that market is kind of done. It's fully occupied. But in the course of doing that, they built out some really good cloud compression algorithms some really exciting ways of rendering dynamic animations on GPUs. 
And so they, they've created this sort of this peer-to-peer network where you can do things that are magical and surprising on end, endpoint devices. And they're in soft beta, so they really have no customers. And so the question is, how are they relevant to bigger companies? Well, here's what we did in that case. We actually went in and did deep research on the job boards and figured out who's recruiting in cloud compression, social networking platforms, uh, mobile contact management. And we built out a database of everyone who's looking for tech resources in those areas. And now I can back into an M&A discussion where I know my client's relevant because they're actively advertising for talent in that space. And it's a small R&D deal, so it's an aqua hire. That's a really, that's a, that's a really good example. And that's, what about, what ahead. about the situation where I mean, it seems like a lot of the projects that I've been involved with tend to be product focused. Uh, what do you think about the approach where people are building a product with the hopes that maybe they get acquired by somebody who has a larger sales force or a big product line to just be kind of slotted in to the larger uh, companies line of products? Um, because it's an easy, like maybe it's a, it's a, it's a value add to something that a company already sells and so an easy sell to their existing massive customer base is, is that is that a good approach or i mean or is that thinking too small no i think that that's a way to create relevance but you have to ask yourself are, are you a kidney or are you a soldier and what i mean by that is it's actually pretty challenging to come in as a product and get slotted into a bigger product to integrate with it to become a module uh, and that's where you get that sort of organ organ donor problem where you, you got a lot of resistance and it's it's hard. If you can get big enough and relevant enough where you're a product that someone wants to buy and operate with your team and you're reporting directly to a CEO, that's frankly a lot easier. It's a lot less disruptive to the acquirer. So I think that's that's the first question. And the second question, there's a there's a mistake that every CEO makes, every entrepreneur makes when they're thinking about this, and that is they get really good at pitching their product and they don't know how to pitch their company. So someone who's thinking along the lines, Mike, that you just described is probably going to sit down with me and, and deliver a PowerPoint that describes a lot of the great, cool features of their product. And what I'm going to miss is, well, why does this company exist? The, the, the earth did just fine for 5 billion years without them. Who cares? What, what's the point? And I actually just came here directly from a meeting where we spent an hour on exactly that problem, where we're looking at a deck on how the product is going to improve the world. And I'm just kind of yawning and, and asking the who cares question. And we finished that meeting with a pretty crisp statement of here's the problem we're solving. Here's why the customer cares. And here's how we're going to build and defend a market. And that's where you need to get to. It can't just be about the product. What do you think about another another slot that you can fit into is, you know, build a product that is disruptive or harmful to some other company so that they want to buy you up to to kind of stop the, you know, to, to they have to abandon what they're working on and move to what you have because they're, you're, you're basically, uh, you know, disrupting their market and they need to be involved in the disruption. Is that so that would be, I guess, less about trying to slot yourself into someone's existing product line and more about, um, you know, trying to, uh, I don't know, just dis- disrupt a, a larger business in the hopes that the people that are being disrupted want to bring you in to be part of that. You know, I, I hear that talk a lot and I try to quash it. I mean, I came, I started the, the first deal that I was, I, I was very junior, but the first deal that I was staffed on was the RJR Nabisco buyout at Morgan Stanley. It was 27 billion, biggest LBO in history at the time. And we were hired in order to conflict us so we wouldn't launch a competing bid. There were only three or four firms in the world that could potentially come in and launch a competing bid against uh, KKR. And so rather than risk Morgan lining people up and coming at them, they paid us $200 million to basically sharpen pencils 
<laughs> but but that's an example of yeah, there's a real threat and there's real money available to stop it. For my clients who are typically anywhere from five to thirty million in revenue, they may think they're a threat, but really they're not. And and the the, the bigger companies have a lot of options. Even even the patent threat doesn't really exist because chances are if 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 you've got one patent, they're stepping on. Uh, they've got 50 that you're stepping on. So good luck winning that fight. So I find that in the middle market, at the lower end, deals sell really on value, not on, on threat. So let's, um, I'm also curious about, you kind of mentioned, it sounds like you are the master at, you know, taking an existing situation and trying to approach and bridge that gap between the company and the folks that might acquire them. And, and you know, obviously, folks can work with someone like you to help do that. But what are some ways, once someone's identified, say, those 10 companies that might be potential acquirers, um, and, and you're saying, let's try to get to know them, you know, do you have any any um, practical advice for folks on how that might work? Is it, you know, do they reach out to those folks and try to set up coffee or ask to demonstrate products? Or, you know, for, for, what, is that, what does that process typically look like? Look, look for common friends to introduce? Uh, yeah, definitely. So you, 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 I think what you figure out first is what's the, how can these two companies win together? How can we do some work with this bigger company where we can add some value and we can get to know them and we can, we can grow our revenue? And, and that's just good business. When you're a startup, no one believes you're going to be around in two years. So if you can sell alongside Microsoft or you know, a big name, frankly, you're just going to, you're going to win more anyway. And so the first thing you do is you figure out what can we do with these guys, and then you figure out who you're going to talk to and what's the pitch, what's the business proposition. And then, yeah, you, you go, go to LinkedIn, go find some mutual connections, figure out a way to broach it simply as a, hey, we've got an idea of how we might do some work together. Let's talk about it. And if you're lazy and, and, and you don't make a very effective approach or you're going to the wrong person, you're going to get the old, uh, well, go to our website and click on partners and, and yeah, mm-hmm. good luck with that. But if you can be compelling about it and, and bring value, then uh, you'll, you'll probably at least get the meeting. What about what about timing in terms of like, you know, people that listen to this podcast, often involved with startups, but involved in startups at a wide variety of stages. Um, and so obviously it, it helps to think about things like this, like you said, from the start. But, you know, at what point, how big do companies, the companies that you work with, you know, what types of milestones do they achieve that makes that make you think that they're getting close to the point where they might be interesting to someone? So there are, there are several inflection points along that growth curve. I think the first one is I, I found working with, with guys who've, for people, excuse me, who've, who've been at Microsoft, Google, et cetera, and then who've gone outside and built something good they tend to have a sense of, of product that's strong enough that they can actually build something that's relevant. And I've been involved in two deals with Google now and one with Microsoft where that was the case. Someone just built something that was good and that was going to be a good fit because that's the environment they came out of. And in that case, the trigger is really the inbound approach, right? I'm never going to advocate running an M&A process for a small startup that doesn't have revenue yet and that thinks they built a great product because maybe they have built a great product but that's, there's more great product sitting in Microsoft Labs that was never monetized or sold than all the startups in the world have probably created. So that's just not going to work. Uh, so the inbound approach is, is a critical inflection point. The second inflection point is if you've got a market opportunity that exceeds your capital, in other words, you, you've got more opportunity than you can fund and, and grow into on a self-funded basis, that's the time to be raising capital or partnering with someone who's got the resources to help you capitalize on that opportunity. So you're getting pulled into it. You're not kind of 
just sort of putting up the white flag and saying, we've done what we can, now hopefully someone will buy it. And then the third inflection point, which is a critical one right now, I, I think the private equity community has, has basically overtaken the uh, IPO market in relevance to tech companies. And that means there's a point where you become relevant to private equity, and now you can run a parallel process and you can pit strategics and private equity against each other. And with the right value proposition, you can drive some pretty interesting valuations now out of the financial sponsors. So when you're, when you're working with a company, let's say it's a Seattle company, and, you're, and they are ready to start, uh, maybe they want to start initiate the process of a sale. How, what's the, what does that look like? How does it work? And how likely is it the, the, the acquirer is going to come from some far-flung place? I mean, you see buyers from all over the world, I take it, and you hunt, you hunt for them all over the world. Yeah, so the, the, several questions there. So on, on the first, in terms of how does it, how does it work, um, I think there's some basic corporate hygiene that people like Joe and Mike can, can help make sure is, is in place. And that's just your, your formation documents are correct. Your IP is adequately protected. Your work for hire agreements are, are, are good. You're, you've just done your housekeeping. And so someone can come in and look and say, yeah, we're comfortable with this. Uh, having an independent board, having a strong board can help uh, create that assurance. Uh, maintaining a, a virtual data room as just part of your best practices. And it doesn't have to be Merrill, Data Corp, $10,000 a month kind of virtual data room. It can be SharePoint or, or Box. But uh, all of those things are important just to be ready and to, and to be crisp and to be clean. But in terms of how it actually starts, the, um, you know, we, so the reason I started TechStrat is basically, and I'll go off on a tangent here if that's all right, guys. Please, yeah. Please, yeah. But I, I felt that the market for, for mid-market tech M&A was, was woefully underserved. And by that, I mean, people tend to take the bulge bracket practice of touting a process. You know, we'll run a great process for you. Uh, we have a great Rolodex. And those two things, frankly, aren't worth what they used to be because LinkedIn puts me a click away from just about anyone in the world. And with the right thoughtful approach, I can be talking to them within 24 hours. And process doesn't matter when no one cares about your company, right? So if you're, if you're out trying to do an LBO of RGR Nabisco, everyone who's got deep pockets is going to want a piece of that. They're going to come rushing to you. And if you're selling a big public company, you can set a deadline and everyone will come. That's not how it works in our world. In our world, we have to create relevance to go back to that concept. We have to create relevance first, and then we get competition, and then we get a deal. And the way you do that is by really deeply understanding the business and where it fits in the market and how it's relevant to the buyers and then helping to frame the, the business proposition and helping to frame the fit so that when you're out talking to people and actually making a market for the company, you're not just the guy with you know five watches on his sleeve saying, hey, you want to buy a watch. You're being thoughtful about it. And the reason I say that's missing from the middle market is that most of the firms uh, basically sell that bulge bracket process and most of their research is actually dedicated to getting the next client on board. It's not dedicated to furthering the interest of the clients they have. And so we're taking those two things, the, the, the basically the deep focus on tech and synergies and fit and high-quality research and really the focus on the clients, and we're using that to build out a small but very viable, exciting uh, tech M&A practice. So are you, got, what, are you building some special technology to go along with it, what you're what you're building, or how is that? How I mean, is there any, is there any kind of special technology in the in the, in the mix? Or 
Uh, stay tuned. <laughs> okay, so here's a question for you. Many, many business owners have this quandary. They're like, hey, I don't know if I should work with a with somebody to help me sell the business or not. And like maybe the maybe their business is is not, you know, it's not a hundred million dollar business. Maybe it's ten ten million dollar business or a little less or maybe a little more. But what do you say? I mean, what do you say to people who are wondering what to do and how to access the right sort of advisors? I think that uh, people who are who are considering that, so first of all, the, the swaggering VC is going to always tell you that good companies are bought and not sold. And, and so they build great companies that get bought. But they always hire bankers, right? So uh, to me, that's just a timing question, is how late do they hire bankers and how, fa- how, how, how fast is the clock ticking? And they also tend to have their own internal resources that do a lot of the things I just described in terms of staying in touch with the buyers, warming up the market, making sure that there's already active interest before they, they hire the bankers. So I would think about that in terms of if, if you're, especially if you're independent and if you don't have that VC sort of networking on your behalf, you're going to need help figuring out who the buyers are, uh, or even if you know who they are, how to build that case for relevance and how to cash in on, on someone else's relationships that were built up over decades uh, to get to know them. And then the second thing is, as with any other service agreement, go talk to some other people they've worked with, and, and not just one. I remember I, I did a deal for uh, Carlisle Group. I sold a, a business for them, and they asked me for a reference. And I sent them a reference, and they talked to him, and they called me back and said, your reference was very well selected. Can we talk to another reference? <laughs> but we ended up getting the deal. That's good. So, the, uh, so yeah, it sounds to me like... Um, I mean, tell me what you what you see as the most interesting sort of development in the tech in the tech world right now. Like, you, obviously, SaaS was huge. What what's going on now that's interesting and sort of around the corner? What what is around the corner that you see that we don't we don't see? I, I love that question because I always use it to pitch my clients. I was actually on CNBC a couple of years ago. Uh, they were asking me who Salesforce should buy, and I just pitched my client. I said, "Oh, clearly they need to get into the enterprise telephony, and here's the profile." Board of directors are sitting there watching this on CNBC, saying, "Wow, that guy's." He's, he's pitching us on CNBC. We better hire him. And uh, we got that deal done, but it didn't go to Salesforce. So, um, but what I think is the most fascinating now, we've gone through inflections of uh, we were, you know, we were micros, minis, we were client server, then we were web, then we, an ASP, and then that kind of faltered, and then we were SaaS, and now we're cloud and SaaS. What's next, right? Every software, every technology company is building to the next platform. And to me, the, uh, the next platform is it's Twilio. It's the API economy. It's Apogee. It's the building blocks that we use to, to build applications to create solutions without having to build every component of the application. You know, it's, you go back to the old days where you would license Oracle and have a business intelligence layer and work with the different vendors and build your stack. You had to raise $2 million just to have a software platform. Nowadays, you can be spinning up instances where Dental offices are sending out SMS reminders through Twilio in 24 hours without building that. And so I'm, I'm seeing really high value and a lot of excitement around these building block companies that are horizontal. They're, they're actually pretty horizontal, and they're building out in this API economy. So that, that's definitely one area that we're trying to stay ahead of the curve on. Uh, that's interesting. So tell me what you mean by horizontal in that horizontal. What do you mean in that context? What, what I mean by horizontal is like a CRM is a horizontal app because every it's, it's something that every business uses. And so uh, communications would be another example, whether you're doing SMS reminders for a dental office or taking inbound calls at a, at a financial services company 
or doing, um, you know, calling it in health tech, you, you have these same messaging requirements, and so it applies across the entire industry. Sure, sure, sure. So it's kind of like the opposite of vertical SaaS. I mean, vertical SaaS is sort of different. I mean, you call that. So, but the, the interesting thing is vertical SaaS is now being built out of horizontal building blocks. And so the, the, the companies that I'm talking about that I'm pretty excited about are the ones that are actually building out those building blocks in the cloud. I see. Okay. Huh, that's but this is this is related to the last question. But so you know, you are out there looking at companies, and then eventually, hopefully, helping them find someone to buy them. What what's the type of company that approaches you and says, "Hey, we're looking to sell ourselves." That you say, "Wow, this is going to be easy," or "This is going to be <laughs> not that they're ever easy." But like, what's the ideal type of company that comes to you? Like, in, in in a sense that if someone's trying to think about what type of company to build, and they're trying to build something that will lend itself well to be sold. You know, what's the what's the ideal company for you that comes to you and you say this is in the perfect sweet spot? It'll be um, easier than otherwise to to try to match up with a with a buyer. So really, uh, it's a great question, and I, I think the the work that I've done over the last twenty years has really been in two broad categories. The one is horizontal, and the other is vertical. And so the vertical market company where I would say, aha, I can help you, we can make something happen, is going to be the the, the established vertical market company in fintech or in health tech, probably founded by a boomer. They've probably grown to 15, 20, 30 million in revenue. And uh, it's not an exciting business. Maybe it's only growing 10% a year, but they've got a big maintenance revenue stream and their customers rely on them. And those businesses are so valuable. They're hard to build. I think they're underrated. And uh, I've had the privilege of doing maybe one or two of those a year for the last probably 10 years now. Uh, and they're great to work with. They're real businesses that have built real value for their customers. The other category is the horizontal companies that are that are going bigger and faster and they're typically younger. Uh, in some cases, they've raised a lot of capital. But ironically, I'm still looking for the same thing, which is they've built a customer base that really relies on them, ideally in a mission-critical way where they've established that value and that relevance and, and they're sticky. So, and the other criteria just, you know, to, to, I pretty quickly look at a headcount, and if you're over 30 people, that's an inflection point. If you're over 150, that's a much harder, much bigger inflection point. And then mm -hmm. the last criteria, sorry to interrupt, Mike, but sure. is obviously if, if you're getting approached by credible people who, who want to have a serious conversation, then that tells me, A, that you're a pretty viable target, and B, that you would be wise to get with someone who's been doing this for a long time so you can manage that as optimally as possible. Got it. So that, that 150 inflection point is you've reached 150 employees and, and you've got customers that are relying on you. That's that, that makes you easier, easier to sell or easier to approach people about, or, or I, I assume the 150 is a, is a good inflection point, right? It's a, it's, I, I said it was a hard one to bridge and that I think there's, there's a lot of research that says chimpanzees can't function in groups beyond about 50 and humans can't go above about 150. And that tends to be the number of Facebook connections that we actively engage with. And that tends to be the point beyond which you need a real corporate culture and mission and real alignment and controls and uh, delegation by the CEO to get beyond. So a lot of companies kind of stall out at that point. Mm -hmm. But uh, getting getting past that point is, is, a, uh, is a, a pretty critical step for a company. But if you're there and you've stalled out, you still have tremendous value. It's just a question of getting in maybe some different management expertise or some different practices to, to, to break through that barrier. So if you hit that point, you're either going to 
going to go, you're either going to fail at some point, or you're going to create your own culture and grow beyond it. Or I guess you'd sell off to someone and become part of someone else's larger culture. Um, but there's only a few ways through that barrier, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, and I'd say it's most likely it's one of the latter two options, unless you're, unless you've raised a bunch of VC and just grown way beyond your, your, uh, the demand. Right. I think a lot of companies stop right there around 150 employees and they have nice a nice steady business, but there's opportunity there for someone who comes in and, and brings some different uh, expertise to the table. Makes sense. So any, I mean, we're, we're getting, coming close to the end of, end of our, our 30 minute, uh, 30 minute slot. Uh, any, any, uh, anything we're not asking you that you think would be useful or, or good advice for folks that are starting companies? What, what are things you wish um, what are you things that you think people would have, you wish you could have told people earlier when they come to you and you wish you could have guided them before, before you had a chance to talk to them? What are some of those words of wisdom well, you might couple, have? Yeah. Sorry, a couple of thoughts. I think uh, the first is what I said earlier, start with the end in mind. So someone's going to ask you pretty early on, who do you think will acquire you? And ideally you've already thought about that and you're not shopping yourself, but you're getting to know them. So, so start with the end in mind. Uh, the second is, just practice your basic corporate hygiene and, and run a tight ship. It takes a little extra time, a little extra effort. It's worth it because there's nothing stronger than if you can be one of those companies that under promises and over delivers where every time someone peels back a layer, they find some goodness, then you're in a great position. I was on another call this morning with a client where we're not exactly gap in how we're reporting customer service costs. And so we didn't wait for someone to discover it. We just told them right up front on the call, by the way, here's an accounting change that's coming. And that's really the right approach. If you overinflate even a little bit, that bubble is going to burst. And it's like listing a house at too high a price on the market. The, the, the price is going to go down lower than market than where it should be. And then the third thing, and this is a comment that a client made to me, and I've, I've helped him sell three companies now. And he basically said, there's a point in every conversation with a potential buyer where something critical is said or not said. There are these little opportunities. And that, this is why they say that, you know, gunfighters don't charge by the bullet. There, there are, you can sell process all day long as a banker, but often your value is delivered in the, in the, in the meeting room where there's a question on the table and you're able to frame up an answer that, that puts your client in the right valuation bucket or that avoids a trap, or that keeps things moving. And that's just where the experience comes in. So if things are getting serious with a buyer, talk to your attorney, talk to your friends who've been through the process before, uh, get help. So, so Nat, we've, we've some, some more time. I think it'd be fun just to listen to a little more progno prognostication from you. I, and you're not wearing your Snapchat goggles today, so I'm wondering what, what happened. <laughs> do you have them yet? I don't have them yet. I saw Peter Hamilton got a pair. Oh, did he? He's posted we, on Facebook. Do we have any of the kiosks in Seattle? I don't know. I, I haven't. I haven't seen them yet. Mike, do you have them? No, no. I, I heard they're like uh, they set up an island somewhere, and if you happen to be nearby, you can get. I don't know. It's just a great way to build some buzz. But I haven't heard of any of them nearby. I think it's only happened in a couple of places so far. Is it my right? I don't know. I don't know about. I don't know if it's hit Seattle. Where's Peter? He picked him up somewhere. Yeah, he must have. I'm interested. Yeah, I saw. I thought it was a very curious way to distribute something like that, right? They had these yeah. boxes, these giant boxes, and you could just go and I swipe your credit card and take a, take a pair, I guess. I don't know. It's, that... it's brilliant. I, I love it. I think uh, yeah, a lot of people hated the Google glasses because they felt like they were being recorded. And the, the, the premise of Snapchat that it's gone in eight seconds 
gives you more comfort when you're interacting with these things. But you know, we've been thinking a lot about the social networking platforms and um, you know, I always consult my expert on these matters, which is my 16-year-old daughter. And at, at first, the whole Snapchat thing made me pretty nervous because there is no forensic trail of anything that's going on there. But just watching how people interact, it's so much more honest. I mean, it's so much more just impromptu. They don't have to plan ahead for the, the glamorous social profile. They can just let go. And maybe we'll see the same thing with the glasses. Who knows? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I don't. I'll have, to, I'll have to try. Mike, if you get a pair, please let me know. I'd like to like to experiment with them. I don't, I don't frankly even really frankly know how to use Snapchat. I should. I have an account, but I, I I'm not. I've seen like my daughter use it, and it's just this sort of natural thing where she just n knows how to message a bunch of people. And it's it's like a uh, it's like an asynchronous digital analog of a quick comment to a friend. You know, right. you say it and it's gone. You right. don't you don't assume that there's a microphone in their tie or that it's somehow being preserved. It just goes away, and so that just lets people be a lot more natural in how they're interacting. It entirely takes away the Twitter business model of of selling analytics against the history of all the communications. Sure, sure, sure. And I was actually going to I was actually going to ask if you had any thoughts. Where where is Twitter going to go? Where does Twitter have a place to go? As I was walking over here, Joe, they sent me a note that I could watch the the football game on Twitter. That's on, cool. on my phone. Sure. You like so, that? So it, that's where they're going. That's where they're going. Well, that is kind of nifty. I mean, I did like that. You can watch the debate. So, what, what is your what is your thought now? Is is M and A going to going to go bananas the next four years, or or the reverse, or flatten out, or or what's going to happen? What's the political regulatory climate hold for people right now? Or is it too early to say? Are we are we really going to go into politics now? <laughs> well, I'm just thinking. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for. You got I'm, 27 seconds. So it's. I would just like your general gut reaction. Even yeah. I, I think the I think the election is basically it's a it's a tax referendum and it's a tax on the coasts, right? The the future of the country. I hate to uh, we'll go we'll go there, but you know the the, the forward looking industries, clean tech, renewables, uh, technology in general. Um, that's that's really where the future is going to be written, and we're going to have a period of time now where we're we're going to see caterpillar and, and some of the concrete and steel do better for a while. <laughs> um, but I think we just have to stay the course and keep uh, keep investing our resources and time and effort into the technologies and the industries that are going to build the future of the country. And meanwhile, in terms of M&A overall, I think this is actually a remarkably challenging time uh, for relatively early companies that need to be acquired. And I was talking to a friend over at Google who's in corporate development, um, and her comment was that the, the pace of inbound inquiries from the VCs has accelerated a lot. And I, she even used the word bloodbath, right? Huh. So a lot of companies that got their first round, did, did some good work, don't really have a way forward. They aren't getting the next check and they're stuck. And so all of the capital and all the energies on the later stage companies that have some momentum trying to create the next unicorn because that's a magnet for capital. So I do think it's going to be really Pretty challenging here for the next couple of years for the early wow. stage. Okay, so companies. that's good data. I, I, I mean, I think so. I've seen two corporate acquirers recently back out and or substantially cut deal prices like fairly well along in the process and because they could. I guess yeah. I mean, I I thought it was ominous that I saw two in a one week period and I'm just one human. But I mean, I you have a better sense for me. So interesting. Okay, so that's a. I mean, that's interesting. That was a worthwhile, you know, talk about the future. That's a valuable data point. So thanks for sharing. <laughs> I hope you. I hope you could still sleep tonight. Joe. Oh my golly. Well, I mean, it's you know, it's always a bummer if you're a lawyer and you're trying to help somebody close a deal and you you're down on like the 
60 or 70 yard line or something, then the deal goes sideways or the, the deal price gets cut or I mean it's always just a bummer. You, you know what I'm doing right now, Joe? I'm I'm playing the world's <laughs> smallest violin because the lawyer still sends an invoice. The right. banker the banker's out of luck. Oh my god, you bankers. That's a tough life. It's a tough life. Hey, so thanks so much for being on the show, Nat. It's my pleasure. It's always fun to talk to you, Joe, and nice to meet you, Mike. So, really so great to meet you, too. So yeah. f- folks want to get a hold of you, Nat, and, and your company is called TechStrat. TechStrat, uh, Nat at TechStrat.com. And that's just T-E-C-H-S-T-R-A-T.com? That is correct. All right, and uh, you heard it here. Uh, if you need help of the nature we talked about, connect with Nat. Great. And Thank you. Nat, uh, th- Nat, thanks for being on the show. Uh, thanks, everyone else, for listening. We'll see you all next week.